Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. Is lust only about sex, or is it something deeper, darker, and more universal? In this episode, Nate tackles the subject we hate to talk about, lust. And now, here's Nate Larkin. Uh, we're still on step four on week 10 here of Walking Lessons. Uh, step four is the searching and fearless moral inventory. And let me reemphasize right from the start that this is not an exercise in self-improvement. As we go through this inventory and we see our character defects and our sins and our failures, and we now assume personal responsibility for ridding ourselves of them in order to please God or to get somewhere new, we're going down the wrong road. Uh, Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. The great benefit of this exercise, I, you know, I was talking with a guy yesterday, he was having a real tough time, he just had a big failure, and I said, you know what the good news is? Today you are really, really clear on the fact that you need a savior. This is where you get to be a Christian. And so we're gonna talk some more about inventorying our sins and character defects, but let me emphasize the fact that we see them so that we can acknowledge them, so that we can surrender them, so that we can ask God to relieve us of them. Please, this will be very, very discouraging. If you see yourself in today's lesson anywhere, if now you suddenly start to imagine that you have got to rid yourself of this sin or this defect uh, in order to move forward. Yeah, it has to go away, but you don't have the power to do it. But we know someone who does. Okay? All right. It's real common in 12-step circles for a sponsor to lead a sponsee in the beginning work of step four and that exploration of that searching moral inventory to suggest what are sometimes called the four horsemen, the four most common character defects among addicts. Resentment, fear, anger, and lust. Well, we spent a week on resentment, we spent a week on fear, last week we talked about anger, and today we're gonna hit the big L, lust. Not, not a subject that gets talked about a lot directly, openly, without shame in church, especially because lust is most commonly connected with sex, and sex is tough to talk about. It's tough for parents to talk about sex with kids. It's, it's tough for husbands and wives to talk about sex together. It's such a deep and personal issue, and for all of us it has kind of these connections because we've all been taken places and gone places, and sexuality lies at the core of our humanity and our individuality. And it is a good and wonderful thing. The Bible is not at all bashful about talking about sex, by the way. First mention of sex shows up, I mean, it's pretty much as soon as humanity does in Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They were naked, and they were not ashamed. I don't know about you, but when I first heard that, when I was a kid, I blushed. I mean, it was just the idea of these people. I remember when it first dawned on me as a kid, that if I was going to get married, then someday somebody was going to have to see me naked. Just scared the living bejesus out of me. <laughs> but here it is. They're in this paradise. 
And uh, there's no shame at all. Now, let's go to uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And Adam knew his wife, is the, uh, the classic way of saying it, that King James rendering. Uh, the NIV says, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. The Hebrew word there, which the King James more accurately renders, knew, is the Hebrew word yada, uh, which means far more than, hey, I know him or I know her, much more than this casual acquaintance. Yada describes a very deep personal intimate connection. And so the Bible says Adam had this deep, intimate, personal connection with his wife. She became pregnant and had a child. That was something else that made me nervous when I was a kid. It's like, geez, Adam knew Eve and she got pregnant? I know lots of girls. I don't know. <laughs> what does that mean? Yada. And what about that image? A man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The more we know about the human body, human physiology, human sexuality, the more we understand the truth of that statement. It's interesting now in the study of, of uh, sexuality to see what happens during sex. First of all, let's talk about the, the absolute necessity for human attachment. You've heard of those studies out of uh, Eastern Europe, for example, of uh, orphans in an orphanage who were neglected, nobody paid attention to them, how some of them actually died from inattention. We know uh, anybody who's in the adoption community, you know about how important attachment is, what a, a, a crucial process it is. I love that we had a couple in here last week in the class who've adopted a baby. They brought the baby with them and kept the baby with them through the class. And afterwards, they were somewhat apologetic. I let them know, absolutely, you know, I'm so thrilled to have the baby here. And she said, well, you know, he's just new, and I want him to bond. We were made for connection with other people. That is one respect in which we are made in the image of God. God himself is a relational being, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. We're made for connection, connection with God, connection with each other. We only find our full humanity in connection with each other. Now, it's interesting. When uh, Allie learned it and communicated it to me, I would have been clueless. But somehow she told me when our kids were real little that it was real important for our babies to bond with us and that a, a big part of that was skin-on-skin -skin contact. So I was working two jobs in those days. I worked, a, I worked night shift at a mental hospital as a floor attendant, and then uh, I worked four hours a day for a construction company. But in between, I had a window. And I would come home, and I would get Kristen out of the crib and change her, and then go sit in the rocking chair and slide her inside my shirt She'd just be in a diaper, and just hold her and rock her and sing. It was something that I'd seen Allie do. And our kids are very, very secure, and I, I know that that's part of it. Now, Allie also insisted on, on breastfeeding the kids. I know it isn't always possible, but in our case it was. 
turns out that during breastfeeding, this bonding chemical, bonding hormone is, is released in the brain of a baby, this oxytocin bonding chemical that helps solidify that connection. Well, guess what happens during sexual intimacy? And not just during climax, but all that leads up to it, during skin-on-skin -skin contact and affectionate touch and kissing and all of that. Well, there are not just the pleasure hormones, and there are those. There's, there's this cavalcade, the, you know, this avalanche of dopamine and endorphins. Dopamine, this blissful thing that comes especially at climax. But along with that comes a big surge of oxytocin. And uh, a cousin of it, and I can't remember, obviously, the cousin would be vasopressin, another bonding chemical that helps us actually firmly attach and connect to one another. You know, God, God made us sexual beings for a reason. He had to get us to engage with each other sexually. The only way he could do that really was to make it pleasurable, right? I mean, how, how, how many of us would get that vulnerable and that intimate if there wasn't a payoff? And for those who've had that pleasure stolen from them in some way, they've got to find some other payoff in order to do it. So he did give it to us to ensure the propagation of the species, no doubt about it. I mean, that's, we have to be able to kind of exchange DNA in order for this thing to keep going. So he assured it by making it pleasurable. But it was more than that. God made sure that in uh, sexual relations, we are cemented to each other, connected to each other. Now, what happens when sin enters the picture? Sin can take any good thing and uh, work evil with it. True? Today, we have all kinds of ways of making virtual connections with each other. You know, I've got my 4,000 close personal friends on Facebook, right? <laughs> that I interact with through this window that I carry around in my pocket, right? Now, I can imagine there is enough of a shadow of intimacy in this that I can imagine that I'm actually connecting with people. But really, I'm only looking at them from the other side of the glass. This is a window, it's not a door. I can never actually get into the life of another person through this phone. I can also, nowadays, engage sexually with virtual partners through this window. I can actually get to sexual arousal and climax through this window. I can actually stimulate that chemical cascade and bond with a phantom. With a phantom. With nothing. And in the end, and I say this from experience, from long and bitter experience, it will leave me lonelier and emptier. So, just to emphasize, sex is a good thing. But if we have an unhealthy relationship with sex, it can be destructive. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us, I think, a key phrase to help us understand what lust is. And by the way, lust is not passion. Love can be very, very passionate. Let's not get the idea that, you know, sanctified sex has to be some kind of a, you know, 
handshake. That's not what this is about. Starting in uh, verse 17 of chapter 4 in Ephesians, Paul writes this, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. I love that phrase, the futility of their thinking. They're just thinking nuts. It's insanity. They're darkened in their understanding and are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, and man, does that happen in active addiction. We go numb, right? Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and here's the phrase, with a continual lust for more. With a continual lust for more. Here is the key characteristic of lust. It wants more. Enough is never enough. More, more is better. I need more, I demand more, I want more, I deserve more, I'm going to get more somehow now. That's what lust says. Now, lust can kind of get its <laughs> claws into us in almost any kind of behavior. I thought that lust was just about sex. I get in recovery, and I come to find out, and I, by the way, I call myself a sex addict, but I do so just because I'm a recovering sex addict, a Christian, grateful, recovering sex addict. I say that that's common parlance, but it's really inaccurate, because sex is not my problem. And in fact, sex is really a part of my healing, a healthy relationship with sex. My problem is not sex. My problem has been my relationship, an unhealthy connection with sex. I have connected sex to lust in my life in a way that's caused myself and other people a great deal of pain. It's more accurate for me to say I'm a lust addict, not a sex addict. And then come to find out that if I'm just focusing on sex and I'm not looking at lust, <laughs> lust will just attach itself to something else. Right after I got into recovery, I, you know, I stopped the sexual behavior and put on a lot of weight. Now food is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. Eating is a good thing. It's a blessing. It's a joy. But if we have an unhealthy relationship with food, if it takes on a significance greater than God designed for it, if we use it to give ourselves comfort, if we use it, the pleasure of eating, to deal with our loneliness or to numb out some other unpleasant feeling, something as good and necessary and wonderful as food and eating can become destructive, destructive to our health. I go in and out of that behavior. And the problem isn't that I'm a food addict. The problem is my relationship to food. We'll talk about how to kind of get that thing back in the middle of the road a little later. Same thing, by the way, can be true of work. This is probably my favorite kind of go-to secondary addiction if I don't want to be in my life, right? I've had a lot of pain around, you know, letting lust drive my sexual behavior, but somehow work seems benign. 
Now work is good. Work was given to us in, in the garden, pre-fall. It's not a curse. It's a blessing to be able to work and be productive. But if I go to work in order to find significance, if I go to work in order to uh, distract myself from relationships or from challenges or from the rest of my life, if I go to work to build a tower to the heavens so that I can reach God on my own, what is a good thing has become destructive. Again, the problem isn't work. It's really lust has gotten its fingers into, its, its claws into work. One more, same can be true of exercise. We could go on and on and on. Now, we are embodied spirits. God made us, you know, it's not like we have, there's this clear division between, you know, body's bad and mind is good and spirit, what, that kind of thing. We don't hate the body as Christians. God made us as embodied spirits. And our spiritual health is affected by our physical health, right? And so we're to care for our bodies, stewardship over our bodies. So exercise is a good thing. But if I run to run away, if I build a physique so that I can support some false persona to bolster that version of lust that says, I not only want to lust, I want to be lusted after, well, then something good can become very, very destructive. And the problem isn't exercise. It's my connection to exercise. You got it? Okay. So lust is tricky, and all of us are susceptible to it, and all of us at one point or another have indulged in it. So here's the thing about lust. Let's talk about some of the characteristics of lust. First of all, lust is completely self-focused. Lust is about me. It's about what I need. It's about what I want. I'm very conscious of my own desires. And when I'm operating in lust, I am not in tune with what other people need and desire. It's very selfish. Lust takes. So it's completely self-focused. You got that? When I'm operating in lust, it's all about me. Second, um, lust is really dehumanizing. That's why that phrase, animal lust, kind of resonates. It's objectifying. When I'm operating in lust, I really don't see the people around me as people. I see them as objects. If I'm operating in a lust for power, for example, then every person around me is either an obstacle or an opportunity. And I'm manipulating, and I'm, I'm, I'm climbing the ladder as fast, and it doesn't matter who I step on or what I do, because they're not really people. When I'm operating in sexual lust, then I'm not really seeing another person. I'm seeing a body. I've got to tell you, when, you know, I'm grateful, by the way. I'm so grateful that I can talk about this now. I'm grateful I can talk about it with my wife in the room. I'm grateful, you know, the scar is still there for us, but it doesn't hurt to touch it anymore. And I'm grateful we can talk about it. You know, when I let the first prostitute into my car in 1986 and followed through on what she proposed, 
Uh, at that point, I was so driven by lust through my use of pornography. I didn't see her as a person. It was a Christmas Eve. It never crossed my mind. What is a young lady doing out on the streets at Christmas Eve getting into cars with strangers? I never thought, where does she live? What do her parents think? Do they know where she is? Does she have a child? Does she have a husband or a boyfriend? What are her dreams? What, what disappointments? What desperation has brought her here? What? I never, ever thought that. Because lust is dehumanizing. Now here's the thing, Allie and I were always friends, even through those dark years. Although I'll tell you what, I was indifferent and mean a lot of the time, but somehow this thread of friendship always kept on through our marriage, even my years of active addiction. But I'll tell you what, when it got time for us to be intimate sexually, I didn't know how to love my wife, used my wife. And, and I've got to know she felt it. And that's why, I mean, early in recovery, one of my sponsors says, he said, Larkin, you've, you've never made love in your, in your life. I was indignant to him. I mean, I got kids, I can prove it. He said, you've had sex. Anybody can have sex. Your dog can have sex. You haven't experienced, really experienced, what God intended. And I'm grateful now to have experienced it. And I'm grateful as well that, you know, Allie and I were talking last night. We're laying in bed. This is our favorite time of the night. And we're, I'm pushing 60. She's pushing 70. The bedroom Olympics are over. We're not, you know, that's <laughs> not the big deal. We can... Just lying there together, skin on skin. There's usually essential oils involved because that's Allie's deal, right? And we can talk and we can be together and there is this moment of closeness and bonding that's so essential to the ongoing health of our relationship. But that's something lust will never experience. Lust is focused on the act and, and it's selfish and it's self-centered. It's taking, it's not giving. And in the end, it cannot truly connect. Lust also is very ungrateful. Uh, because, you know, lust is very demanding. It wants what it wants and it wants it now. And lust is never satisfied. Lust imagines that the next one might do it, but the next one never does it. Uh, and meanwhile, there is kind of, I don't know, part of it, I think, is this pernicious perfectionism that gets connected with lust. You know, of all the hundreds of thousands of images that I've seen in my life that I shouldn't have seen, you know what, I never saw the perfect one? But I kept thinking that the next one would be the perfect one. That's quite the contrast with God. Here's one thing that strikes me about God. You think that, that marvelous story of creation, the way Genesis relates the story of creation. Did you notice how content God is, and God is love, how content God was with incompleteness. So he takes six days, right, to create everything. And on the first day, what? He says, let there be light. So the light comes on. And there's nothing else, just light. Right? And God says, that's good. And he knocks off for the day. Right? And he rests and he enjoys. And you know what? It's not done. It's not perfect. But it's good. Guess what? 
Your life is never perfect. Your sex life is never perfect. Your body's never perfect. <laughs> that, that's an illusion, right? But it's good. And I'm grateful now just to be able to see one of my great regrets. I spent several months before Christmas this year going through old photo albums and scanning pictures of our kids so I could give it to them for Christmas. So I'm going back through our family history, all these old photographs. And I see all these pictures of my kids and I see all these pictures of Allie during my dark years. And she's a beautiful woman. She's a beautiful woman today. She was a beautiful woman then. I see all these different versions of Allie. You know what saddens me? There were so many years when I really didn't see her beauty. I didn't. And because I'm the biggest mirror in her life, I wasn't able to reflect to her in a reliable way how beautiful she is. She had a lot of self-doubt during those years that came from me. You know, when we met, I could not believe that this woman found me attractive. I could not. I mean, in, in a world that defines, you know, male attractiveness as tall, dark, and handsome, you know, let's face it, I'm 0 for 3. <laughs> but Allie had had some experience with tall and some experience with dark and experience with hand. She somehow thought I was cute. It was crazy. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and she has still managed to just think I've got something. That's what love does, see? Okay. And uh, finally, lust is impatient. Lust says, I want it, I deserve it, and I'm going to get it now. And if you're not going to give it to me, I'm going to find another way to get it. I'm going to find the quickest and most convenient way to get it now. I'm not going to wait. When I'm operating in lust, I have to have it now. Now, love is the opposite, is it not? How does Paul begin, you know, that little hymn to love in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. I'm going to read that to you right now, and then we're going to do something interesting. I'll read that one section. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. Now, lust is pretty much the diametric opposite of love. Lust is the enemy of love, and love is the antidote to lust. <laughs> okay? They're opposed to each other, these two things. Uh, I'm going to read this passage again in reverse in order to describe lust. Okay. Lust is what love isn't. So, I'm going to read it again. Lust is impatient. Lust is unkind. It's envious, boastful, it's proud. It's rude. It is self-seeking. It's easily angered. 
it keeps a record of wrongs. Lust delights in evil and does not rejoice in the truth. Lust does not protect, does not trust, does not hope, does not persevere. So how do we, uh, how do we counteract lust? How do we keep lust from ruining our lives? <laughs> well, first of all, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the first step is just acknowledging that we have allowed lust into our lives in one form or another. We need to be rescued. We need a Savior. And then there are ways that we can cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in relieving us of lust. So lust is self-focused. I'll tell you what, when I find myself falling into a manic lust pattern, no matter what lust has attached itself to that day. I find it's very, very helpful for me to go for a walk with another guy and listen to his story and get into his life for a while, just to get out of mine. That's why ministry is very, very important to me. Not necessarily that I even do anything, but just allow somebody else's life to dominate for a while. Lust is dehumanizing. When I find myself seeing body parts, seeing bodies again, I mean, that's an old habit. And part of it is just instinctive. I mean, God, God made the, 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 the male of the species to find the female attractive. That's always going to be there. I have no power over the first look. But when I find myself taking the second look, and that is a taking, by the way, that's a stealing. Okay, when I find myself taking the second look, what I've learned to do is this. I got some great help from, from early sponsors in this. They said, when you find yourself lusting, start praying for that person. And so I'll say, I don't know, I don't know her name. I don't need to know her name. But you know her. You know everybody carries a sadness, and you know what her sadness is today. Everybody's lonely, and you know where she's lonely. You know what she needs, what she wants, what she dreams. Would you please protect her, God, from predators? Will you bless her today? Will you bring love into her life? And I find that as I pray for her, the lust dissipates because I'm seeing a person, not an object. Lust is ungrateful. Love is grateful. So... Um, most useful tool early on in my recovery, early on, and I think I've told you this, is just that daily gratitude list. When I find that lust thing starting to, to rise up, lust says, you don't have what you need. You really have gotten a bad shake. Your life sucks. You need something else. You need something more. But when I sit down and put pen to paper, and write down all the things I'm grateful for today, all the blessings that God has given me, then I avoid that trap that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, where he says of the Gentiles, because they did not acknowledge God as God and were not grateful, God gave them over to a reprobate lust. That's where it starts. It's within gratitude. But if I choose gratitude, I don't have to, to plummet into that pit of lust that's going to poison my life. And uh, finally, I need to pray for patience and to acknowledge what is good about where I am. I can find myself in this head where, you know, 
I'm either in a good place or I'm in a bad place. And right now I'm in a bad place and I'm in a bad mood and I've got to do something and I've got to fix it. I've got to change it somehow. I've got to alter things. There is really a great power in learning just to be in a place with a God who's good, to be mindful of where I am. If I'm eating, to savor every bite and take my time. If I'm in a place just to be there and say, this is good. And when I'll do that, it takes the fuel out of lust. Okay, I went kind of long today. That's my, uh, but I've devoted a lot of personal study to this topic. It's near and dear to my heart, lust. <laughs> it's not what the whole course is about, but thank you all for listening so attentively today. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.